Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations Podcast, episode 46, Tijuanan Comeuppance, The Rise and Fall of Antonio Margarito. Now, if I sound the exact same that I've sounded the entire time on this podcast, it's because I'm still using this fucking headset mic. I, uh, I ordered good, good microphone things off of Amazon, and Jeff Bezos did drone it to my place by Sunday. And then I hooked it up and I recorded it, and I was like, this is going to be great. I listened back to it, and it sounded like I was at a fucking Taco Bell drive-thru, guys. I don't, I don't think, I didn't buy bad stuff. I just, I think I underestimated how stupid I am. So I recorded a fucking episode about this, and then I listened back to it, and I was like, oh man, that sounds fucking... It sounds like a school PA system for, like, when I was in school. It sounds like fucking... So, we're just... Look, we're back to the Cosmonaut microphone. It's all right. Back to talking with my hands. Half the problem, I fucking held it like I was, like, doing stand-up. I held it, like, close to my mouth. That might have been the whole problem. I don't know. It came with this little baby stand all this foam... These foam fingers that are, like... It looks like that scene from Armageddon where they're doing the inkblot tests, and then they gotta be in that room with all the fucking... I don't know, the triangles coming out of it. I bought some of that shit. <laughs> Dude, I was so happy. I was like all set up, recorded this whole thing, and it was like, that sounds god-awful, Chris. Come on, Chris. <laughs> I didn't do more. I did a short little test. I, I said Portuguese Man of War into it twice. I was like, Portuguese Man of War. And then I got closer. I was like, Portuguese Man of War. And then I listened to that. I was like, oh, perfect. Do the whole thing. You're good. Didn't work out. So sorry. Hopefully this will be the last time I'm using this goddamn Cosmonaut microphone. It's back on my head. I am talking to my hands right now like I'm angry at a family function. And that actually feels kind of better. Because I didn't have to hold anything. But I would like this to sound professional on some level. So hopefully in the next two days before we do Patreon on Wednesday, I can figure out how to make this sound alright. If you didn't notice, I just bitched for no reason in your ear. How's your Monday going? I hope you're doing well. I'm still really happy to have this stuff. I just totally fucked it up. So I'm like, oh, God damn it. All right. All right. It's fine. Anyway, we're going to be covering Antonio Margarito. He was a boxer. And, uh, I mean, he's still, I mean, he's not dead yet. But the active years we're going to be talking about are from 2005 to 2010. Uh, that's when he, like, rose to prominence. And people thought he was going to be one of the guys that maybe can take out Mayweather. And when I say people... This story is close to my heart because I completely fell for this dude. I was like, this guy's the best. He's the fucking best. And then, I mean, towards the tail end of our story, the last fight we'll talk about, there was a heel turn in this guy's persona. That's the hardest I've ever gone from, like, I love this professional athlete. I feel like I identify with him. I would love to take a picture with him. He's the man. Oh, my God. And then... In like six minutes, I was like, I hope he gets fucking knocked. Down. I hope he gets beat the fuck up. I can't believe this. Dude, I got I got so on my high horse after they announced the thing. We'll get to it. There's a hell of a heel turn in here. And maybe it'll happen for you too, where you'll like the guy at the beginning. And then once, once you get to the one thing, if you don't know anything about Antonio Margarito, you're going to learn the one thing that most people know about him. He's like widely regarded as a villain of professional boxing. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about his style, where it comes from, his early career, how he rose to prominence, how, all the things that made me love him about his story. And then we are going to get to the one event where everybody was like, Jesus Christ, what a piece of shit that guy is. Who, who ever liked him? Myself included. Because I remember watching it, because the 147-pound boxing division, 
I think this hit me just as I was like getting into college or whatever. It was like big amongst me and my friends and Pacquiao was huge. I mean, this was, this was like a golden age for the welterweight division. Cause normally heavyweights bring in like the actual money and pay-per-view buys and shit going back to like the Tyson days. But this was when the 147 pound division really made its mark. And this was like, you had guys like Mayweather, Pacquiao, Mosley, Cotto, uh, well, uh, Claudie was in there. Ricky Hatton was, uh, I mean, Ricky Hatton was a 140 pounder who moved up to 147 to fight Mayweather, but he was in this division. This was all around the same amount of time when the 147 pound class really came into its own. It was like a golden era because there were so many great fighters and they were all willing to fight each other. HBO must've made a killing here. Also a uh, character in this story, uh, Manuel Stewart is like my favorite. I don't know. He was a boxing trainer. Uh, he like trained Tommy Hearns at like the Kronk gym. If you're like a boxing head, but he ended up doing HBO commentary and actually he was training Kermit Citron for one of these fights we're going to talk about an early one in Margarita's career, but he's like my favorite boxing announcer of all time. And I found like looking into this, I went and found all of these fights in like most of them in HD or just on YouTube with like less than a thousand views. Like the Paul Williams, Antonio Margarito fight that took place outside, like the HD version of that from HBO with the commentary is just less than a thousand views on YouTube, just hanging out. I haven't watched that fight in forever. It's great. We'll get into it. We'll talk about it. But anyway, so this is a boxer that I thought was the man. I totally bought into a story. I was like, this dude's the fucking best. You guys, you guys don't even know. Who do you like? You don't even know who to like. And then uh, at, during the Shane Mosley fight, which we'll talk about, it was revealed he was doing like the dirtiest, like the cardinal sin of boxing. It's so fucking dangerous. Like, and they revealed it on a live broadcast. And then the fight happened. And I remember watching it being like, I never even really liked him that much. I, th I, th I thought something was weird, you know, I don't really. So, let's get into it. Antonio Margarito, Tijuana comeuppets. Let's take a look at it. All right, first, first reason that I definitely fell in love with this fighter far too, far too quickly was his style, right? Okay, so Margarito had what is known as uh, Mexican style of boxing. That's not, it's not racist or anything. It's just a style of boxing that's in there. It's, it's a well-known style. It's fucking Mexican style of boxing. Now. If you don't know what that is, that is a style that it wasn't invented, but it was popularized by a dude named Juliar Cesar Chavez. Man, I butchered that fucking legend's name. I'm going to try it again. Julio Cesar Chavez. Out of respect, I got to at least get that somewhere right. This guy was the man. Anyway, so he popularized this style of boxing from like the 1980s into like the early 2000s. He had a pretty long career. Now, the Mexican style of boxing, the style emphasizes aggression with very minimal attention paid to defense. And it also relies on pace to break an opponent. So this style of boxing, and normally guys have like natural attributes that help lend themselves to being able to survive while fighting this way. You're just walking people down, pressure, 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 volume, 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 throw as many punches as you can, as hard as you can, and put a pace on a guy. Don't worry about defense. Don't get knocked out or anything. But you're going to break this dude. That's how a Mexican style of boxing kind of functions. And that was the style of boxing that Antonio Margarito had. People still use this style. I mean, it's very popular. It's a, it's a popular style of boxing. But it is really dangerous for the guy who's doing it. Because part of the style is just built into it. You're going to get punched in the fucking head a lot. Like, you're going to try to win by breaking an opponent's will. He is going to counterpunch you a shitload. But if you have the natural attributes that you need to be able to pull off this style, it can be a devastating style of boxing. And it's really entertaining to watch, at least for me. And that's part of the reason why I was so into Antonio Margarito when he came on the scene. I was like, fuck, nobody's really doing this at 147. These could be interesting fights with Pacquiao, with Mayweather, stuff like that. When, like the high up dudes. I mean, 
after the Mosley fight, or right before the Mosley fight, I believe Mayweather retired, so it was kind of off the table for Margarito to fight Mayweather during, like, the, my height of his love, like, my love for him. But it was still like, oh, man, maybe you'll come out. Maybe you'll fight him. I don't know, because I remember Mayweather's, I don't know if his uncle or his dad, one of those two, because they were both, like, prize fighters. They were both fighters. One of them had the nickname of the Mexicutioner because he used to, like, uh, like just TKO and KO uh, Mexican fighters left, right, and center. So part of my head was like, man, maybe Mayweather will come out for, like, the family thing and, like, sell the fight that way. I was trying to think of, like, marketing schemes. I, like... Like half, like I'm gonna fucking email HBO when I'm 20 years old and be like, here's how you sell this fight. I'd really like to see it. I think it'd be a good one. Know what the fuck I was talking about? Anyway, but this is a style of boxing that Margarito employed. Now, one of the things about this style of boxing, other than being wildly entertaining and dangerous for the guy doing it, you kind of have to have a certain number of natural attributes to go with it to make this style work, or else you're just gonna get knocked out. Which brings us to the star of the episode. Let's talk about Antonio Margarito, just the dude, and how he got into boxing, a little bit of his backstory. This is also the part of his story that I was like, oh, of course, that dude, he comes from like Tijuana. He's like an old school fighter. Anyway, so Antonio Margarito uh, is a Mexican-American boxer who was born in California in 1978. Now, he didn't live in California. He was born in Torrance, and he almost immediately moved down to Tijuana. Now, he had a brother. Now, down in Tijuana, Antonio Margarito and his brother just hung out at a boxing gym all day, every day. And what are you going to do if you hang out around a boxing gym? You're going to eventually learn how to box. So just by hanging out a box in a boxing gym in Tijuana with his brother, Antonio Margarito picks up boxing, learns how to box, and he actually amasses a like a he's starting his own little amateur career here. Now he doesn't have an extensive amateur pedigree like a lot of the people he would go on to fight, like uh, like Cotto and Mosley. These guys had, like, amateur pedigrees, people to look after them when they were amateurs. So, like, they had over 100 amateur fights. Sometimes they went to the Olympics. Margarito was just down in Tijuana with his brother and taking amateur fights. So he amassed an amateur record of 18-3, and and then he was forced to turn pro at 15 years old because of financial reasons. He had a baby mama, and this kind of highlights the separation between, like, in boxing... There's not, it's not two different camps, but there's two different ways to look at it. Like some people look at boxing as prize fighting. Like Margarito looked at boxing as prize fighting when he was young in Tijuana because I need money for baby mama diapers. I need money. I can't have a long amateur career where I'm really taken care of and I'm groomed. I got to start taking fights for money right fucking now because I, I got a girlfriend I got to pay for. And that's prize fighting. Now that that kind of like harkens back to the beginning of boxing, where people kind of th- saw it as like a lower class thing of like, oh, that's disgusting. People fight for money, and then eventually, I think boxing made it into like Ivy League schools, where it was picked up as a sport. And now, like, there was two camps for a while, where it's like kind of like, you know, people who hang out on yachts would box at like Yale, and then it would also be like act, like real prize fighting. Uh, like happening, and every now and then they would like match people from those two different worlds up and stuff like that, but. So that's sort of like there's a there's a division in boxing between like prize fighting and boxing that's sort of talked about every now and then. But these days, it's, I don't know, it's it, it's not as pronounced. But when it started, boxing was really like actual boxer boxers who would fight for money and needed to were sort of looked down upon. And in that way, Antonio Margarito was a throwback boxer because he was just down in Tijuana taking fights. Not nobody looked after him in his amateur career. He had no good pedigree. He just had to turn pro. He had the style he had, and he had the natural attributes he had, which we're going to get into, to be able to try to make this style work. And he's trying to make his dreams come true. He's trying to provide a life 
with boxing. I fell for this whole fucking story. I still remember it. I still remember being like, of course it's an old style fighter with a style that's hard to combat and he's he's going to do it himself. Wait until we find out what a piece of shit this guy turned out to be. All right. Now, his actual style. He was a swarmer. He, he throws a ton of punches at once, the Mexican style. Incredible punch output. We're looking at like 100 punches around, which is a lot. And also, this is the natural attribute you need for the style. He had an indestructible chin. Margarito could take a punch, especially at 147. Now, Margarito was 5 foot 11 inches tall, and he fought at 147 pounds, which is wildly tall for that weight class. And he had an indestructible chin. You couldn't even wobble the guy. Now, nobody knows when a chin's going to crack. And people were kind of waiting to see, like, all right, well, when does Margarito start getting knocked the fuck out? We've seen him take punches forever. He can't get rattled. And he would take punches, the kind of, like, hard counter punches because of his style, where he's always trying to walk his opponent down. He would fight boxer punchers, like people who could really counter punch and crack a little bit, take their full shot while he's moving forward with momentum to try to walk them down and not even have his knees buckle. He would just kind of, either he would miss him, the guy would circle out, and then he would just keep walking him down. Dude, he, I'm t- and he kind of looks like Jafar. He was like the It Follows vi- like villain if it was a Mexican boxer who kind of looked like Jafar, that nobody knew was evil until the very end. I, look, I totally fell for it, but it is funny to look back on now about how much I thought this dude was like the future of boxing and shit, and then the reveal is just like, ah, man, I have no idea how to judge character. Fuck. But coming out of Tijuana, he also had a pretty cool nickname named the Tijuana Tornado because he would just maul people. He would break guys. He wasn't into nuke them. That's not his style. He's not trying to spark guys out with one punch. He's trying to fucking break you over the course of nine rounds, 10 rounds, 11 rounds. People just wouldn't finish fights. He would just put a pace on them. And I, I always thought that was a little bit craftier than it might be, the idea of trying to beat somebody with like a, with like pace. Like you're not... You're not training a punch. You're not training a combination. You're training like a, a strategy that encompasses the whole thing where it's like, I'm going to beat you because I'll control how you breathe. I can flinch you and get you off your balance and then you'll breathe and it'll be disrupted. And in that way, I'll make you tired without even throwing a punch. Oh, by the way, I'm throwing 100 punches around. So you're going to be tired no matter what. Like if Margarito caught you and you were flat footed against the ropes, he was going to throw like a at least a five punch combination. Probably a seven punch combination, maybe a nine punch, maybe a fucking 13 punch combination, just banging away at you. And they all wouldn't land, but some of them would land. And even the ones that like landed on your shoulders, if somebody had like a Philly shell defense where like in the Cotto fight, Cotto kind of does a lean back thing. It's not a pure Philly shell, but like Margarita would fucking hit his shoulder. Some of those punches would just damage other parts of your body. Like if you fought this guy, you were taking a beating, which is actually kind of why it was hard for him to get pro fights at the beginning. So, yeah, real quick, just his early career. So his first 10 fights, he had to turn pro for the baby mom money. I got to figure this out. I got to pay for a cell phone, fucking cricket wireless, whatever the fuck we got down here. I, I need some fucking money. So his first 10 fights were in Tijuana. And here's the thing, and this is like a sidebar in boxing. There's a thing called slow teach, where, like, if you have a fighter who just turned professional and there's some upside, you might be able to make a lot of money off him one day. A manager will cuff that guy if he doesn't already know him. And then bring him along in a system that's called slow teach. So the way this would work, if me and you, what's up? We're boxing managers now. We're a manager and a trainer. I don't know. You're the trainer. I'm the manager, right? And let's say we have a boxing prospect. And he's pretty good. He's going to turn pro, but he's raw, right? 
the way that me and you would plan this is that we would scout pro opponents for him that are going to challenge our prospect in a way that we can kind of control. So, like, if our guy has never fought a southpaw before, we'll go and scout out a pro opponent somewhere that's a southpaw, but let's say he's got shitty endurance. He can only go, like, three rounds. And our guy's used to fighting, like, eight-rounders. So, like, because you don't have to fight. Like, there are professional fights that are, like, uh, like eight rounds, ten rounds, something like that. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm almost positive that there's, like, eight rounds, ten rounds, professional fights. So we get, like, a shooter fight, guy with no wind, he's a southpaw, let's put our prospect in there. Nice. Because even if it goes bad and our guy can't handle the southpaw aspect, we know that he's got endurance to be able to fuck him up because we don't want our, we don't want our prospect to get a loss. You always want an undefeated boxing prospect so then you can sell him later on down the line for marketing purposes as, like, undefeated, da-da-da. This was also a problem that Margarito came into because – in his amateur record, he had losses. And in his pro record, in his first 10 fights, he had two losses. But that's partially because he didn't have a manager looking out for him at all. It was just him and Tijuana taking fights with whoever will have it. I have an iron chin. I'll walk you down and I'll break you. I need some fucking money. Who's got to fight for me? He didn't have anybody slow teaching him. And because of that, this is all part of his narrative that was built when he became like a big fighter and was fighting Kodo and all this other shit. When I first like found out about him, the, the fights with Citron and Paul Williams is that like, it's an old school mentality of like, I'll fight anybody. I got a couple losses that kind of comes with the territory. Nobody's looking out for me. I'm walking people down, breaking people. Can I please get a big fight? So for the first 10 fights, he goes eight and two, which is a good record, but as a pro, you already got losses. So it makes you less marketable as far as getting put up against other prospects on big shows because you already have losses. Next 10 fights, he goes 9-1. and one. So he gets another loss, another 9 wins. But again, that looks like a great record. 17-3 is pretty good. But in boxing, 17-3, not great as far as getting built on the high shows. His next 10 fights, wins them all. He's now 31-3-1 with one no contest. I think it was a, a bad cut. It's a great record, but nobody wants to take a fight with him because now, yeah, he's proven that like this, I can really fight. This guy can really fucking fight. He's a handful and he's not marketable. He's already got losses. What are you going to get? He doesn't have a fan base yet. So it's, it becomes difficult for Margarito to get fights because he's so dangerous and he's not really worth much because he doesn't have, he, nobody's looking out for him at the beginning. So because of this, there becomes like a sort of like a, like a whispered and hushed in amongst like hushed, uh, what do you, what's that fucking saying? In hushed voices, where it's like, there's this guy from Tijuana who's a fucking monster, but nobody wants to fight him. And so like the legend of Margarito kind of gets built up a little bit. There's like a groundswell of like, nobody wants to take a fight with this guy because he's too dangerous, which is one of the first things I heard about him, which I was like, oh dude, this is the secret weapon here. This guy's going to be the best. Anyway, one of the first real fights he got is a rematch with a Puerto Rican uh, boxer puncher named Kermit Citron. Now, Margarita had stopped Kermit Citron with a liver punch a couple of fights back in the fifth round. Uh, and let me define boxer puncher because I use that term like everybody should know that. And honestly, I knew it, but it was one of those things where it's like, if somebody asked me one question above this, I'm fucked. So I went and looked up exactly what a boxer puncher means. So a boxer puncher is a boxer who possesses many of the qualities of an outboxer, hand speed and often an outstanding jab combination and or counterpunching skills, better defense and accuracy uh, than a slugger, 
while also possessing slugger-type power. So Kermit Citron and Miguel Cotto, the fight we'll talk about afterwards, they were boxer punchers. So they were quick, they were crafty, they had a good jab, they can counterpunch, and they had a little power to them, too. So when people were coming up and Citron wanted the rematch, when there was going to be a rematch, people were like, I don't know, let's see. How's Margarita going to hold up? Because at this point in time, Margarita was 30 years old, and he had had a 15-year pro career, and a chin doesn't last forever. So people were kind of wondering, like, all right, is this the fight where Margarito's chin cracks? Because I don't understand it. This guy's throwing power. He's throwing volume. Oh, that's another thing that, like, people don't understand when this guy came on. Like, with this style, there you can have power punches. But normally, if you're throwing 100 punches around, not all of them are going to hurt. Not all of them have, like, power behind them. And from all of Margarito's past opponents, the guys he'd broken, because people would talk about, like, what's it like to fight that guy? What's it like? Everybody said he has like uncanny thudding power in all of his punches. It doesn't make sense. He's tall. He imposes a pace he can't keep up with. And all of his shots, like they, even if they hit you on the fucking arms, there's a thudding power to it that people didn't understand. It was another thing I'd heard about him. I was like, old school guy, thudding power. Nobody looking out for him. I bet this guy's going to do it. I totally fucking fell for all this shit. So he rematches Kermit Citron, and at the time, Citron, first of all, fighting out of Redding. Shout out Redding. I've had a couple fun times up there. Also, uh, so Kermit Citron was 29-1 with 27 KOs. Now, his one loss was the liver shot knockout to Margarito. So he was looking to get redemption on that. At this point in time, it was a televised bout. You can find this this fight online also. It's a pretty great fight. I rewatched it. Now, in the first round, Citron comes out and immediately tests Margarito's chin. He sits down on a counter punch, and Margarito's coming in with his style, and he fucking nails him. And it doesn't do anything. It does nothing. Margarito fucking chin's still good. And it's it's a repeat of the first fight that Kermit Citron had with Margarito, where for the, the first minute of every round, Kermit Citron comes out, He's doing well. He's counterpunching. He's using his legs. The second round, Margarita's getting a little bit closer with those valuable punches. And then the third minute of, of every round, the fight only went six rounds, but the third minute of every round after the first or second round was just Citron circling out and being like, God damn it, I can't get this fucking It Follows demon off me. This thing, because if you plant your feet, he's going to throw a combination at you. You have to always be moving. That's part of his game plan. He's breaking you with pace. You're never comfortable. You're never breathing the way you want to breathe. And this fight turns out exactly like the first one. Margarita wins the IBF welterweight championship after this fight because he knocks out Kermit Citron the exact same way. It's a liver shot again. It's in the sixth round this time. Kermit Citron threw a right hand. Margarito ducked underneath and threw a left hook to the body, caught him right under the rib cage. Another liver shot. Citron goes down. It's a fucking knockout by body punch. Also, just real quick, if you ever want to know where like a guy's liver is at, if you're looking at him, I don't know. I thought this was a cool fact. So the left hook to the body is known as like the liver shot, you know, a hook to the liver. Because if you're standing straight right now, you look at your left hand, if you were going to throw that wide and punch somebody in the stomach from the side, or actually be like, kind of like side front, sort of like right underneath the ribs, that's where everybody's liver sits. And that's why a left hook to the body is a left hook to the liver. Because, I mean, everybody only has one liver and it sits on the right side of your body. So that's always the punch. If there's like a liver KO, it's either a kick or a punch right underneath the rib cage on the right side, delivered by either the guy's like left, left hand, left foot, or some spinning shit. Could be like his right, 
and go Diaz brother some spinning shit in there. They could be your right foot. It was like a spinning back kick. But anyway, just fun fact right there. Liver's on the right side of your body. That's why it's always like a fucking uh, hook to the body with the left hand. And that's what dropped Citron, the boxer puncher, and now uh, is the IBF welterweight champion. Um, and just real quick, there's a bunch of athletic, like, uh, sanctioning bodies for boxing. I think there's, like, four major ones, like IBF, WBO, WBC. They call them, like, the alphabet belts because it's just a bunch of letters. So there's, like, four belts you can win for every weight class, at least four. And then every time you would win a championship fight, if you're the champion of that organization, you also get another belt, which kind of explains if you ever seen like a boxer with a shitload of belts on, you got four different organizations and you get a new belt every time you win a championship fight. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you, it's possible to stack up belts. If you're, like Mayweather has like fucking 50 belts. He's just been winning championships his whole life. But a little mystery solved there. That, that's how many box. That's why somebody might have a ton of boxing belts when like in my head, it's only... Like, if we're going by, like, WWF rules, when I was a kid, it's like, no, there's, like, one belt, right? It's like, no, there's, like, four sanctioning bodies. You can, you can win a shitload of belt in real boxing. So, coming off the Kermit Citron fight, this is a controversial fight now in hindsight, once we learn that thing about Margarito. But, at the time, this was Margarito achieving his dreams. He got a fight with Miguel Cotto. This was a huge deal. Miguel Cotto is a, well, at the time, still is, Puerto Rican superstar boxing. So he had a fan base that was completely different than Margarito's fan base, which may be the reason why this pay-per-view got signed, because it was two culturally way different fan bases coming together. Uh, Margarito was like ascending. He's kind of like a journeyman, like not journeyman, but like a traditional fighter. He has like a groundswell, like a cool band that like people hear, hear about, but like doesn't really get like a professional push. Whereas Miguel Cotto comes from that pedigree I talked about earlier where like, you have an amateur background of 100 amateur fights. You went to the Olympics. You, when you turned pro, you had a manager looking to slow teach you every step of the way to groom you into being a superstar, which he eventually became. And so it wasn't just a stat, like a clash of cultures or styles. It was also like a clash of pedigrees where like, no, Margarita has been fighting for diaper money his whole life. And like Hodo's kind of had it handed to him a little bit. So there's a little bit of that of like, oh, this guy like hard scrabble got here and Kodo's kind of been pampered. Which is really just like marketing and shit. Kodo had a fucking rough coming up too. Also, Kodo is a tremendous fighter. In no way was he a soft fighter. Now, he was able to be hurt, which only made his style more exciting. Because he was also like a boxer puncher. Now, Kodo was coming off... I believe he already... He he, uh, he recently defeated Zab Judah and Shane Mosley. Who were both really great 147-pound fighters. And in doing those two fights before he fought Margarito... He diversified his offensive skill set because Cotto was known for a left hook to the liver. He was known as a devastating body puncher when he first came out. But after fighting Zab Judah and Mosley, he diversified his skill set, learned how to angle off more. He put a lot. He became more of a two-handed fighter, which means that the guy can crack with both hands, not just one. Not that Cotto was a one-handed fighter, but that left hook to the body was his money punch early on. And after fighting Judah and Mosley, he came away with a right hand that had to be respected too and could kind of command distance and knock guys out. So, how'd the fight turn out? Well, all right. It is regard, I mean, Rig Magazine called it 2008 fight of the year. Now, one of the important things about this fight, and especially with the stylistic clash, is the referee was a dude named Kenny Bayless. Now, the only reason this is important is because Kenny Bayless hates it when people clinch. He will break a clinch almost instantly in a professional boxing match. Now, this is important because Miguel Cotto, the boxer puncher, versus Antonio Margarito, the Mexican-style swarmer, 
one of the ways that you can kind of control distance and calm down a guy who's swarming you, either you can make distance with your legs by circling out and getting away from him, resetting, or you can pause the action by coming in and holding a little bit and smothering his punches. But with the referee Kenny Bayless, that second option doesn't really exist. He'll break you up right the fuck away and he'll take a point from you. Now, Cota would go on to rematch Margarito with a different referee, and he didn't really hold on at all at that point in time either. So maybe it's a stylistic thing that Cotto just preferred to circle out. I don't know, but when we get to the Mosley fight, Mosley utilized clinching pretty effectively to be able to deal with Margarito's pace, and Cotto didn't take advantage of that during this. Not that he could have because of Kenny Bayless. So how'd the fight turn out? All right, round one. Comes out, and Miguel Cotto lands a huge punch. Kermit Citron did a similar thing, where he fucking, his money punch, left hook to the head, while Margarito's coming forward, still doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything. And after the first round, Miguel Cotto threw like 70 punches the first round. Margarito only got off like 50 punches. So, I mean, Margarito didn't hit his target mark of 100 punches around. Cotto did. He was having the clean head snap and shots. But even at that point in time, the announcer of the booth, specifically Emmanuel Stewart, was in the booth. He's a great, ba- great boxing announcer. He's the guy who trained Tommy Hearns and stuff. He's just been in boxing his whole life. He's dead now, but RIP. Emmanuel Stewart was the man, especially on like watching these old fights. After the first round, Emmanuel Stewart just says, like, that's how I thought it would go. The real test is going to be round four and five when Margarita turns up the pace. Because he was, he had the knock on him was that he was a slow starter. And so people kind of expected, all right, Cotto's going to come out. He's going to be slick. He's going to counterpunch him. How long can Cotto put up with him? And also, can Margarito take these shots? And will Cotto break? So after the first round, Emmanuel Stewart was like, yeah, wait until round four or five, and then we'll see what really happens. Happened way quicker than you thought. Round two, Margarito comes out and starts chasing after Cotto. And that's how the rest of the fight went. Cotto couldn't hurt him. Now, Cotto was still beautifully counterpunching the whole time, creating space with his legs, but he's not holding. He's using energy when he has to create space that has nothing to do with damaging Margarito. And Margarito is putting that pace on Cotto round after round after round. I mean, in like the eighth and ninth round, it's kind of crazy to watch the fight because the guy who's landing the clean, head-rocking blows is also the guy that you're watching. You're being like, fuck, this guy might quit soon. It's a weird fight to watch because the the guy who's scoring the clean punches is also the one you're nervous about. Like, I don't know if he can keep it up. I don't know if he can keep it up. And actually, uh, in round eight, because I rewatched the fight, Margarito sees this and reads what's happening. and sees the desperation. on Cotto's face is fucked up, too. Like, by the end of this fight, Cotto's face looked like uh, that Twilight Zone episode in the Eye of the Beholder, where, like... All right, spoiler, sidebar here. Eye of the Beholder is, like, uh, a classic Twilight episode where, like... You never see what the woman looks like, but she's getting a bunch of face surgeries done to try to make her look like a real person, or else she's got to go live on some colony with people who look bad. That's, like, the point of the episode. But then at the end of the episode, they reveal that, like, oh, no, the lady's, like, super gorgeous. She's a gorgeous woman from, like, the 50s. And then all of the doctors and nurses are grotesquely mangled. They have, like, prosthetics on. They're, like, big uh, big brow. It just made them look like... I don't know, stereotypically, like, not the best-looking people in the world. So, like, the the point of the episode is, like, beauty's the eye of the beholder. The only reason you need to know that is because at the end of this Cotto Margarito fight, Cotto looked like one of those doctors from that Twilight Zone episode. His face was, like, it was fucking distorted. He got, he looked like he got, he got mugged, dude. 
But that's because Antonio Margarito was enjoying his work, specifically in round eight when I rewatched the fight. Margarito's like doing like a jog to like chase him down. He, you could really see a guy like enjoying his work and smelling like I can break this fucking guy. The round after that, in round nine, Cotto ended up sitting on the middle rope while he was up against the rope, taking like a seven fucking 11, like 13 punch combination. He got hurt to the point where he had to kind of sit on that middle rope and the announcing staff noticed it and were like, oh shit, the next step down from the middle rope is the canvas. They were calling it. Cotto was running out of steam, man. Margarita was crushing him. And then in round 11, or actually end of round 10, it was a Cotto round in round 10, but then the last 10 seconds of round 10, Cotto gets stung real bad and he goes to the stool hurt. He comes out of the stool in round 11. He still doesn't have it all together. Margarito puts that pace on him to the point where it forces Miguel Cotto to take a knee. He had, to, he had to just get him off him somehow. He couldn't use his legs anymore to create space. The ref won't let you clinch, and also you weren't clinching to begin with. He can't deal with this fucking onslaught anymore. 100 punches around. All of them have thudding power. He was forced to take a knee. And when this happened, Emmanuel Stewart's like, ah, oh, it's over. It's over. Like, Cotto, no, I'm sorry. Cotto gets back up. Margarito jumps on him right again. Starts hitting with hard shots again. And that's when Emmanuel Stewart, like, it's over. It's over. Cotto goes down, takes another knee. His corner throws in the towel. Antonio Margarito has defeated Miguel Cotto in the biggest fight he's ever had in his whole fucking life on pay-per-view. He's now a Mexican boxing superstar. He has ascended all the way from a boxing gym in Tijuana where he had to fight to pay, like, a cricket wireless bill. And now he has sold a ton of pay-per-views. He is a bona fide boxing superstar at this point in time. This is when I loved him the most, and I was like, get Mayweather on the phone. I think he could take him. But the Easter Bunny is not real, and uh, you find that out, or we both, we'll both find it out right now, but this is when I found it out. This, is, uh, this next fight is the one that actually secured Margarito's legacy here. So, next fight Margarito took was against Sugar Shane Mosley. Now, Shane Mosley is an incredible boxer, but he was a little long in the tooth for this one. He was 37 years old. This fight took place on January 24th, 2009, and the Vegas odds were 4-1 to against Mosley. People thought Mosley was going to get fucking murdered. Because, the okay, the last fight Mosley had was against Ricardo Mayorga. Now, Ricardo Mayorga is a very fun... I think he's from Panama. He's a very fun fighter. <laughs> like he, He's got real power in his hands. He's a real boxer. He's also notorious for smoking cigarettes the whole time, getting fucked up during camp, and then just showing up and knocking people out. Mosley kind of had a tough time with him. He ended up knocking him out late in the fight, but Mayorga's hard to knock out. But Mosley kind of had a tough time, and that was the fight he was coming off of to fight this new rising, newly minted, Mexican boxing superstar Antonio Margarito. So Vegas put it at like a 25% chance that, that Shane Mosley can pull this off. Now, right before the right before the the boxing event happens, right before the fight starts, right? They gotta right they gotta wrap the fighters' hands. Now, here's what happened here. So a cornerman from the opposite fighter's corner is allowed to come and watch the opposing fighter's hands get wrapped to make sure that there's no tampering, that we're just wrapping hands, it's fine, it's not a big deal, just make sure everything's okay. It's usually, it, it's never a big deal. It's I've, This is the only time I've ever heard of being a big deal. It was never a big deal in Margarita's career before this. But, now Shane Mosley had recently hired a new trainer, 
dude named Nazim Richardson, who I think we've already talked about on the podcast one time. He's also the guy who trained Bernard Hopkins, who was 43 years old at the time, to beat the shit out of 26-year-old Kelly Pavlik. And that had happened about six months before this fight took place. So I really wonder, I have nobody I can ask this about, but did Shane Mosley see those results that Nazim Richardson got with Bernard Hopkins against a younger fighter? And did he call Nazim Richardson to change camps because of that fight? I don't know whether he did or not, but it it turned out to be a really smart move. Nazim Richardson came in. He ran his whole camp. Bunch of new strategies. Game plan for him. They were ready to fight Antonio Margarito at his peak. So the night of the fight, Nazim Richardson goes into Margarito's dressing room just to watch the hands get wrapped, make sure everything's on the up and up. You know, he's always looking out for his fighter, protecting Mosley whenever he can. He'll go and watch these hands get wrapped himself. Now, in the process of watching Margarito's hands get wrapped, and this, and I watched Nazim Richardson talk about how he, how he found this out. He's watching the hands get wrapped, and he noticed something illegal happens on the wrist. The guy wrapping the hands, it was uh, the head trainer, Capitillo, uh, the head trainer from Margarito is wrapping his hands, and it's illegal to make two loops around the wrist with the same roll of tape. But Nazim Richardson sees this, and he also knows that that is like a podunk, low-level amateur mistake to make, and this guy is not an amateur trainer. So the way that Nazim Richardson describes this is that he sees that the the minor fail, that's like an amateur mistake, and he was like, well, if they're doing that and they're making me look at that, then what am I missing? He looked at it like the same way that like somebody would solve a magic trick. He was like, all right, if you're making me look there, what are you actually doing? So he goes and he feels the hand wraps, and a pad drops out of Margarito's hand wraps. It's a hard pad. They don't know what it is, but everybody in that room knows that that shit's not supposed to be in there. Apparently, Margarito started asking his manager, like, what is this? What is this? What is happening? Which is classic guilty guy behavior. The boxing commission takes the wraps off Margarito's hands. They take all the evidence. They, they seal it away. They're like, we got to talk about this in a second. You're definitely getting written up for this. However, there are 20,000 people in the Staples Center right now, and we sold a bunch of pay-per-views, so we got to wrap your hands normal. I don't know what the fuck this shit is, but we're wrapping your hands regular, and you still got to go fight Shane Mosley. None of the fans in attendance know this happens, by the way, which we'll get to in a second. So the boxing commission takes away, and just real quick, what those hand wraps were, it was plaster of Paris. Like the, the boxing commission would later go on to do chemical tests on what those hand wraps were. They were plaster of Paris. He was going to put his hands in medical casts. It's called loaded gloves. He was loading his gloves. It's like the cardinal sit of boxing. Boxing's already a really dangerous sport. People die in the ring for a number of different reasons. Bad weight cuts are just, that's how it happens. Like it's a really dangerous sport. So the idea of Putting your hands and making plaster of Paris, the, the way he did it is that the plaster of Paris would have solidified when it got wet. So as the fight went on and as his hands would become sweatier and sweatier, the cast would become harder and harder in his hands, which also explain. Now, there's no confirmation. Margarito claims it's the first time this ever happened. He didn't even know what was going on. And the head trainer did the thing that the guy in the entourage does on the tour bus where he's like, it's totally my fault. I did it all. It was, a, it was a mistake. It was for another fighter's hands in practice to protect them. I didn't even mean it. But, I mean, does anybody buy that shit? 
it calls into question all of Margarito's wins coming up here. The Citron win, the Kodo win, where his face looked like the fucking Twilight Zone at the end. And also, they went back and, after they found this out, they went back and looked at Margarito's hand wraps in the, from the footage after the Kodo fight, and it was stained with the same color that the insert that fell out of his hand the night of the Mosley fight had. So people speculate, they're like, oh, he had loaded gloves for that, which makes watching that fight even even kind of tougher because Dakota takes a fucking beating in that fight and to know that like Margarito might have had loaded gloves for that man but anyway none of the Mosley fight Nazim Richardson catches it rewrap those hands that's fine we're gonna go back we're still gonna do the fight so Margarito comes out and here's the thing I don't know if Nazim Richardson told Shane Mosley that he found this or not this is another question that kills me I don't know if he if he communicated to his fighter that like yo we just found out this guy was loading his gloves so if he got all those wins with loaded gloves, you're fighting him without loaded gloves. So this might be easier than you think. I don't know if you would say, say that or not. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I have no idea. And I can't, I, I can't ask Mosley or Nazim Rich. I don't know either of those dudes. There's no way to actually ask him, but it is a question I have where it's like, did you communicate that to your fighter before you went out? Cause there's no way to know. But as the fight starts, if you are watching the fight at home, the broadcast crew let you in on like, we just found an illegal pad. It's speculated Margarito was trying to load his gloves. Anyway, back to the fight, guys. And that was the point in time when I was watching this fight that I went from, like, I love Margarito. He's going to be the future of boxing to, like, I never even really liked that guy. I don't even know why. That guy seemed like a real jerk to me. Fuck that guy. Let's go, Mosley. It was the quickest heel. Like, it was just the quickest turn ever from, like, being so high on an athlete. Like, this guy's great. Comes from Tijuana. Old-style boxer to, like, he's fucking cheating. I hope he gets knocked out. And then I watched the rest of the fight and just hoping, hoping Mosley would stop him, which... If you want to watch the fight, this whole thing's on, and, and this is a cool one to watch, actually. If you want to actually watch any of the fights from this, this might be the one to watch, because you can imagine that the, the audience cheers for Margarita the whole time, because it wasn't announced that he was found loading his gloves. So it's weird, because the actual audience was pro-Margarita during this Mosley fight, and so, but if you're watching it at home, you're totally rooting for Mosley. Because you just found out that Margarita was trying to put medical casts on his hands to fucking do something. And how long has he been doing that? What a piece of shit. So you kind of have like inside knowledge that the audience that is watching the fight live doesn't have. So it almost makes you feel like you're on the underdog's team if you wanted to look it up on YouTube. It's, it's a pretty great fight. Anyway, so how that played out, Margarito got his ass beat. Whole time. Whole time. I don't know whether or not Mosley knew he had loaded gloves or what, or if it was just a great game plan, or Nazim Richardson struck it rich again with an older fighter against a young up-and-comer here with strategy. I don't know, but Mosley comes out fast, counter-punching him, puts a pace on him, and he exploits the thing where he can create distance to get away from the it-follows victim or villain using his legs, and also by clinching up, because the ref didn't, give him, didn't penalize him. It wasn't Tony Weeks. So he could either create space with his legs or create downtime by clinching a little bit and getting a rest there. He used that in his counterpunching. He was beating the shit out of Margarita the whole time. He eventually stops him, which had never happened before. Now, Margarita didn't get knocked out cold because his jaw still wasn't cracked at that point in time, but the amount of power shots Mosley hit him with, the final sequence of the fight is, I think it's four or five power hooks from Mosley on Margarito as he's up against the ropes, and the ref tries to jump in, and Mosley hits him one more time with a right hook. 
it's regarded as maybe Shane Mosley's greatest win of his entire career. He was an, he was a four to one underdog. I don't know whether or not he knew that, that he almost had loaded loaded gloves or not, but Shane Mosley beat the shit out of Margarito. And so just a little post notes on this. After the fight, they do test the substances. Margarito gets suspended for a year. Capitillo, the trainer, gets suspended for a year. But during that time off, Margarito starts talking shit about how, like, that's I've never done that before. That's not why I was dominant. You guys will see when I come back. So his first fight back, he knocks a guy out in the first round, kind of like a tune-up fight. Second fight back, he fights a prime Manny Pacquiao and gets his face broken. He gets demolished by Manny Pacquiao. And that was supposed to be the fight that proves, like, I'm going to show you that I'm back. I never needed hand inserts. And also, during that training camp, Margarito released a video online of, like, him making fun of Freddie Roach for having Parkinson's disease. So it made watching him get beat up even better. You already hated the guy because he, he loaded his gloves. He might have been loading his gloves the whole fucking time hurting people. And then during the Pacquiao camp, he, like, released some video where he was making fun of Freddie Roach for having Parkinson's And Freddie Roach is, was Pacquiao's head trainer at the time. He did suffer from Parkinson's that was starting to become worse as, you know, as time went on, but he was still a great boxing trainer and stuff. But during that training camp, I remember Margarito released a video of him and a training partner, just, just making fun of Freddie Roach for having that disease. And then to watch the fight actually take place. And it was like, Oh, nice. Break this guy's fucking face. This is great. It was like, it was fun. It was funny how far away from my love of Margarito I had gotten by that point in time. But I did get fooled by the uh, by the story coming up. Oh, also one more thing: Miguel Cotto did get his revenge on Margarito. There was a rematch, and uh, actually Pacquiao broke Margarito's face so badly he he shattered his orbital bone that Margarito almost had to retire. And then uh, he got surgery. He came back, and then he fought Miguel Cotto. And Miguel Cotto got a medical stoppage because that eye swelled up so bad. I believe it was his right side eye, and Miguel Cotto was known for having that left hook. That was his power punch. And he swallowed his eye up shut. And I believe it was a stoppage in either the ninth or 11th round. But again, even in the rematch, Cotto didn't really clinch that much. And he could have because Tony Weeks wasn't reffing it. He just, it looked really similar to the first one. But Dr. Stoppage, Cotto got his revenge on that one. So the story ties up nicely. And I don't know, I didn't mind it. But it is uh, Antonio Margarito, dude. Tijuana and comeuppance. What a piece of shit, huh? I loved him though, and it's still a great style of boxing. He still he still had a great style, you know. But he definitely did uh, load his gloves and really put a lot of people in danger. So that's how it goes. All right, episode forty six, guys. Uh, it, there is going to be a cut at the beginning of this one, and sorry for using the headset mic. Uh, next two days, I'll, I'll figure out the the actual microphone because as I was recording this one, it just shut off in like five minutes. So I'm just going to smash them together and not even put a song. But if you made it this far, there's a cut at the beginning of this. Sorry for the pops and stuff. We'll work on the audio. I hope you guys have a nice Monday. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll talk to you guys on Wednesday. Uh, I'll see you.